Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. That's our text for this morning. If you have your Bible, which we hope that you bring your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to be opening to Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. These three verses bring us to the end of the text in Jonah's book. Four short chapters, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 4, bring us to the end of the text. And so we will seek to exposit these verses this morning, to shine light on, to expose the meaning of these three verses. And then next week, uh, as we come back, we'll be uh, finished with the, the text as far as working through it systematically Uh, But I will preach a message next week entitled, Lessons from the Belly of the Whale, uh, in which we'll fly back over Jonah's book, and I will pull some major applications, some major themes uh, that I want to make sticky uh, in your hearts and minds, that I want to solidify in your hearts and minds. Uh, And then the following week, I will uh, turn our attention to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, in a final message in our Jonah series Uh, entitled, Jesus is Greater Than Jonah. Jesus is Greater Than Jonah. So uh, you've got two more weeks after this morning uh, where we'll be in in the book of Jonah, and then we'll turn our attention to uh, a fairly long, inductive, in-depth study of the Gospel of Mark, August the 12th. You want to mark your calendar for that. Make sure you invite a family member, a friend, a coworker to come and be with you as we embark on our study of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 1 of Jonah, Jonah learned the lesson of God's providence and God's patience. Jonah learned that you cannot run away from God. You can run, but you can't hide. Jonah learned that lesson of God's providence and his patience as he tried to flee God's will for his life. In chapter 2, Jonah learned the lesson of God's pardon That is that God forgives all those who call upon him. You remember Jonah there in the belly of the whale, and he cries out in chapter 2. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah learns something about God's pardon, God's forgiveness for all those who call upon him. In chapter 3, Jonah learned the lesson of God's power as Jonah had a front row seat before a whole city that humbled itself in repentance before the Lord. And in chapter 4, Jonah has one more lesson to learn. Jonah needs to learn the lesson of God's pity, of God's compassion, of God's kindness. God has compassion for lost sinners, and his servants, that is you and that is me, by the way, must learn to mirror that compassion. That's where we're headed this morning. The title of the message is The Compassionate Heart of God. Jonah chapter 4 is the revelation of the heart of God to which the entire book of Jonah has been moving. And to some, maybe even to you, as you have read the book of Jonah before, or maybe as you've read ahead in our study here, you might think that the book of Jonah seems to end with a strange abruptness to it. I would agree in some respects. God asks Jonah again if he has justifiable reason to be angry And Jonah again argues that he is still right and God is still wrong. And so what God does in the concluding verses of Jonah chapter 4 is God explains the meaning of the plant, the meaning of the worm, the meaning of the wind. And then God sets his compassionate heart on display. We don't know what Jonah said. We don't know what Jonah did after verse 9. 
But Jonah's book wasn't intended to leave us with Jonah's words being the last words in our minds. Instead, we're left in the presence of God, face-to-face with him, toe-to-toe with his word. God had the first word in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and God has the final word in Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we turn our attention to our text Jonah, writing his own story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, pins the following words. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah, said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. Go ahead and grab a seat. What I want to do this morning is I want to share with you, and uh, by way of acknowledgement on the front end, this is in no way a comprehensive list. In no way a comprehensive list. Many, many other things could be said that I will not say this morning for the sake of clarity and brevity for just a few things. But I want to share with you two of the greatest hindrances, I think, to our reaching the lost for Christ in our city that we learn right here in Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Two hindrances to reaching our city for Christ, the lost in our city for Christ. And then I want to share with you, uh, lastly, uh, one of the greatest catalysts to reaching the lost for Christ in our city. Let's draw our attention first to the negative, the hindrances to reaching the lost for our city Uh, or to reaching the lost for Christ, rather, in our city. Write this down if you're taking notes this morning. We'd encourage you to do so. A on your outline is comfortability. Comfortability is a killer to mission. Comfortability is a killer to mission. Let me draw your attention to verse 9 here. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What's taking place in verse 9 here? And really in the preceding verses as well, God is putting his finger on an idol in Jonah's life. And in doing so, God is subsequently putting his finger on an idol in our lives as well. And that is the idol of comfort. Jonah's love for comfort. God greeted Jonah's first request to die with a question. And he does the same thing this time. However... Whereas Jonah remained silent the first time God questioned him concerning his anger, this time Jonah responds. Jonah says, yes. God, I do as a matter of fact. If you're asking the question, do I have right to be angry? Am I justified in my anger? The answer is yes. I do. I do have good reason to be angry. Angry enough to die, Jonah says. Jonah's not only angry at God for what he did to Nineveh, But now Jonah is also angry at God for what he did to him. Namely, God removed some of Jonah's creaturely comforts 
Did you notice back in the preceding verses last week that Jonah was greatly pleased when God came to his rescue, so to speak, and eased his distress, eased his discomfort? But now, now when the worm attacks the plant and the plant withers, and the scorching wind and the heat bears down, attacks, literally, the text says, Jonah's head, Jonah is now displeased. Jonah is now angry. What God has done is taken one of Jonah's idols right off the pedestal. It's the idol of comfort. And I would submit to you, because I am you, that we struggle with the same idol of comfort. What God is trying to impress upon Jonah is that if he is angry enough to die because of the plant, he should be compassionate enough to live for the people of Nineveh. Both Jonah's unconcern for Nineveh and his concern for himself both reveal a selfishness in Jonah. His disconcern for Nineveh and his, his great concern for himself both expose great selfishness in Jonah's heart. I would say this. Let, let, let me say it humbly uh, because I struggle here too, but I want to say it clear. He, hear me here. If you're a Christian and you're not engaged in mission of some sort, if you're not engaged in sharing the gospel with the lost, then I, I would submit to you, I can confidently say to you, you're being selfish. If you are a Christian, if you are a born-again believer, if you know Jesus Christ savingly by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, if you've come to Christ through faith and repentance and you are not on mission, then you're being selfish. Now, I'll qualify that and say that not everybody's ministry looks the same. We ought not be looking around and beating ourselves up because my ministry doesn't look like his ministry and her ministry doesn't look like her ministry and his ministry doesn't look like her ministry. Our ministries are going to look different. They're going to take different shapes. But the bottom line is if we're not communicating the gospel to the lost, we're being selfish. We're, we're readily receiving the blessing of God and all the comfort that comes along with it, but we're hoarding it. We're sitting on it. It's selfishness. Our modern culture is perhaps one of the most comfort-driven, selfish uh, cultures in all of history. Having said that, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon told us that, right? This is, this is no new phenomenon. This is no new heart sin. But, but sin, if you look at Romans chapter 1, does, does kind of spiral downward. And I, I, would, I would submit to you that our modern culture is perhaps one of the most comfort-driven, selfish cultures in history. You can see the evidence for this everywhere. Hashtag first world problems is one of Twitter's most favorite hashtags. Think about that for a second. And we say it all the time, first world problems. The coffee maker doesn't work this morning. The battery went out in my watch. I dropped my cell phone and I got the Spider-Man app. For free. Because my screen spidered all across. First world problems, right? The, advertisement, the advertisements that we are bombarded with promise a particular product or service that will make life more comfortable, more easy. Pain and hardship are always considered to be bad. Fun and comfort are always good. 
And that's the culture that we live in. Reject that which is uncomfortable. Gravitate towards that which is, is comfortable. I, there's a thing that I say with my cycling buddies oftentimes, and, and I really try to impress this thought upon my own heart and mind. It's simply this, get uncomfortable, stay uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable and stay uncomfortable. I have to remind myself that when, when, when the miles are clipping uh, on, on the bicycle, when things aren't comfortable, just stay there. Stay in that uncomfortable lane. Friends, comfort is the enemy of mission. Comfort is the enemy of mission. Comforts aren't inherently evil, but comforts can lull you and I to sleep such that you waste your life. If you've never read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, let me highly commend it to you. Short book, 180 pages or so. It will change your paradigm. It will change your view of how you invest your life as compared to how you spend your life. Don't waste it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Don't waste your life. Comfort is the, is the enemy of mission. Let me, let me just pull out a selected story. You may have heard this one before that John Piper highlights in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He He challenges challenges us to consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. Any of you subscribe to Reader's Digest? A few. This 1998 edition of Reader's Digest tells us about a couple who took, quote, an early retirement from their jobs in the Northwest five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read this, Piper says, I thought it might be a joke, some spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, that was the dream. Imagine this. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this playing softball, and collecting shells. That's a way to waste a life. Comfortability is the enemy of mission. But comfortability is the, is the gravitational pull that we all must fight against. Piper says, picture this couple before Christ at the last great day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, see my shells? It's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you and I to embrace that dream. Piper encourages us in his book, don't buy it. Don't buy that dream. Don't buy that dream. Many Christians today, and I fight this battle. I'm with you. Not just the preacher who's got it all together up here. Not just the talking bobblehead. I'm with you. Many Christians today are comfort-seeking soldiers ignorant of the conflict that surrounds us, the spiritual conflict that surrounds us. We value leisure and pleasure and fun above almost everything. We see the world as a playground instead of a war zone. Friends, let me remind you, there are a lot of things that Jesus promised his followers. Comfortability never made the list. There are a lot of wonderful, glorious things that Jesus promised his followers, but he never promised them comfort. 
In Matthew chapter 8, a scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Just imagine. A lost guy, by the way. Comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, buddy, you better count the cost. Are you sure? Because that's what you're signing up for if you want to follow me. Following me is not a life of ease and comfort, though it is for a number of us an idol on the pedestal. Friends, it'll cost you money to follow Christ and make him known. It'll cost you time to follow Christ and make him known. It'll cost you sleep to follow Christ and make him known. It'll cost you having the newest and the best. It'll cost you your reputation. It will sometimes cost you your dreams and desires. It'll cost you your safety. You know, Jesus never said we'd be safe, by the way. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, and I'll be with you till the end. But he never said you'd be safe. We gravitate to safe places. Lord, here I am, send me. Don't send me to the dangerous places. Don't send me to the places where I need a bulletproof vest to preach the gospel. I'll go, but not there. Different set of circumstances, different heart issue. That's the exact same thing Jonah said. I'll go, I'm a prophet. He was already a prophet. Just don't send me to Nineveh. I don't want to go there. It'll cost you tears to follow Christ and make him known. It'll cost you the best jobs and the highest pay. It'll cost you everything to follow Christ. And so Jesus asks you and I, just like he asked the scribe in Matthew chapter 8, are you sure? Are you sure? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Our response ought to be that of Peter's in John chapter 6. Remember Jesus in John chapter 6 has just finished preaching about the fact that he is the bread of life. And he is the spring of living water. Jesus says, he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then the text says, and many of his disciples, of course that's lowercase d, many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. In other words, when they were, when, when they were faced with counting the cost, the cost was too great. And they turned away and no longer followed him. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, you are our most precious treasure. We'll follow you wherever you go and whatever the cost. That's what you signed up for. That's what you signed up for. The temptation for Jonah is the same temptation that you and I face thousands of years later sitting here this morning in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. We want to live a life of comfort. We want to be able to pull in the garage and close the garage door behind us and live in our protected sanctuary bubbles we call home. We want to just be able to have a quiet lunch at work without talking to a bunch of people. We don't want to be asked questions, spiritual questions that we don't know the answer to. We don't want our friends at school to think that we've lost our minds. We don't want our coworkers to think that we're religious nut jobs. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be laughed at. We don't want to be rejected. We just want to be comfortable. 
which is the enemy of mission. God is a sending God. And when we sit, we blaspheme his character. When we're silent, we give a bad report about who God is. And we fall short of the compassion that his heart is so full of. The same God who sent Israel to Assyria by way of sending Jonah to Nineveh also sent his son to this earth to die. And he's sending you and he's sending me to make Jesus Christ known in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. But our desire to be comfortable will kill that. We'll stop it dead in its tracks. Because we'll always be pouting. Just like Jonah out there in his makeshift tabernacle, his makeshift booth in the middle of the desert, because God took and decimated his idol of comfort. And now he's spending all of his time, he's spending all of his energy, he's spending all of his emotional thrust complaining and whining instead of seeing the great need that is right in front of him. Comfortability is the killer of mission, friends. Number two, or B, misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Comfortability will keep us from taking the gospel to the lost in our city, will keep us from making Christ known amongst the lost in our city, but so will misplaced priorities. Let me draw your attention to verse 10 here for a second. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Here's here's the paradox of verse 10. Jonah is concerned about a plant. God is concerned about people. Jonah is all up in arms about a plant that withered. God is all up in arms about people who are perishing. Jesus called his followers, that's us by the way, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. There is not a greater commandment than these, Jesus said. And so let me ask you this question, friends. What do you love more than your neighbor that you would put before your neighbor's great need to be saved? What do you love more? What do you prize more? What do you treasure more? What do you adore more? What do the affections of your hearts gravitate towards more than the lost soul of your neighbor who needs to hear the gospel to be saved? There's something there for all of us. There's an answer there for all of us. Again, is it your reputation? Is it your comfortable life? Is it your undisturbed relationships? Implicitly in the text, the readers, that's us, are being asked, are we like Jonah? Are our values distorted? Jonah, you're all up in arms over the plant, but you've missed the greater thing. The people, look, look, open your eyes. You know, it's interesting in John chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, why do you say four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look, the harvest is white or ripe. 
but to the degree that we have our eyes focused inward. That's the definition of selfishness, by the way. To the degree that we have our eyes focused on ourselves, we will miss the harvest that's right in front of us. We'll walk right past the lost coworker in the cubicle next to us. We'll walk right past the mom that's sitting at the mall in a little play place with her kiddo. Because all we can see is our own needs. All we can see is our idol of comfortability and our distorted, misplaced priorities in front of us. God is calling Jonah and subsequently you and I as well to give up our misplaced priorities, to give up our misplaced pity, to give up our misplaced love, and to love to pity the lost. We're eaten up with the cares and the concerns of self. I, me, and my are some of our favorite pronouns. But just like God blessed Israel as a nation that she might be a blessing to the surrounding nations, so God has blessed you and me in Christ, if we know him savingly, that we might also be a blessing to those around us. Not that we would sit on the blessing. Not that we would be the the gatekeeper, the one who decides who gets to hear about the blessing and who doesn't get to hear about the blessing. God has called us to be a blessing to others. God is calling us through Jonah to love others, to give, to go, to serve, to sacrifice for the sake of the lost. And the question is, the question that's that's in the text here is, will we, like Jonah, be content and comfortable in our own little oasis in the desert? Or will we go? If you notice that your creature comforts are withering, it might be because God is ringing your bell. If you, if you look at your life and you notice that creature comforts seem to be careening down, it may be that God has got you by the collar saying, wake up. Your priorities are wrong. And I'll take away from you the creature comforts that you might not be distracted by them so that you can see what is of great importance. Typically, people, even believers, tend to express more passion over the crash of a hard drive than they do over the lost souls of their neighbors. People who are in jeopardy of of standing before the, the unmitigated fury of the wrath of God A friend of mine named Bob McNabb, Bob and I haven't spoken in many, many years. As a matter of fact, if Bob and I passed each other in Walmart, we might not recognize each other today. Many years ago, Bob worked on staff with Campus Outreach. Uh, and even prior to that, as a college student, uh, shortly after he had come to Christ, was being discipled, God was growing him, he was spending time in God's word, uh, God's heart was becoming his heart. Uh, Bob put pen to paper and he penned this poem. This is what Bob said. I've just seen the world and I'll set it to rhyme the way God sees it all the time. It's starving for food, number in millions, while those needing life must be counted by billions. There is a green pasture nearby, only a stone's throw away, but without a shepherd in hunger, 
they'll stay. Where are the shepherds? Where have they gone? They're out pulling weeds in their own front lawn. The shepherds have problems, they'll tell you themselves. The manure from sheep, oh, how it smells. What color should the drapes in the shepherds club be? Nikes or Reeboks, which should a shepherd wear? Ask the dying and see if they care. But I've seen the world and the way it can be, and these things no longer are important to me. Must manure, I must agree, certainly does smell, but what does it matter when sheep go to hell? Once again come the tears, once again I must weep, for no one is listening as God calls, feed my sheep. Misplaced priorities. We're concerned about the Nikes and the Reeboks and the drapes and the carpet color. We have a myriad of things that grab our care and concern and will draw our attention away from the lost and the dying. Friends, could this be a critique that God is making of us? The same critique that he is making of Jonah, could he be also making that of us this morning? Do we care more about the items in our garage or in our gardens or the produce of our fields, our home, than we do about the souls of our fellow man, than we do about the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than we do about the evangelization of the world in our day and in our time? Jesus has commanded us, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to the whole creation. The question is, how have we responded to that command? The command is clear. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole of creation. The question is, how have we responded to that command? Are we inwardly angry that God would impose such a burden on us? Have we determined that that we'll consider the task later in life when it's more convenient? Have we shrugged the responsibility off our own shoulders and, and convinced ourselves that proclaiming the gospel to the whole of creation is the work of vocational ministry, missionaries or at least the work of other Christians beside ourselves? Have we grown indifferent and apathetic to the reality that every person everywhere has an immortal soul and will spend eternity in heaven or hell? Have we tried to busy ourselves as to not have to think about it? How have we responded to Jesus' command? We've all responded in some way. If God is so concerned about the salvation of people made in his image, can we be any less concerned? No. We can't be. Here's a thought to ponder. Challenging for me. Because I love stuff just as much as the next guy. But care and concern for worldly things is directly connected to the amount of stuff you own. Track with me for a second here. Care and concern for worldly things, the things of this world, are directly connected to, in proportionate to, the amount of stuff you own. The person who has has set their life towards accumulating things, and we can do this without this being our life's mission, by the way, you don't have to write it down. My life's mission is to accumulate things. Okay? But if, if that's the direction in which our life is heading, then we will spend much of our life taking care of the very things which we have accumulated. It takes time. It takes money. It takes energy. It takes effort to take care of the stuff we own. What if we got rid of some stuff 
and had more time and energy and money and focus to be about the business of making disciples of all nations. Number two on your outline. Here's the positive. Okay? Comfortability will eat your lunch. It's the enemy of mission. It will stop mission dead in its tracks. So will misplaced priorities. Again, this list could be much longer. Many more things could be said about hindrances, things that hinder us from, from taking the gospel to the lost in our city. But these two things I wanted to highlight specifically from the text. Now, let's turn to the positive here. What is one of the greatest catalysts to reaching the lost for Christ in our city? Again, there is a whole lot more that could be said here. I'm going to say one thing. It's this. Imitating the compassionate heart of God. One of the greatest catalysts to reaching the lost for Christ in our city is imitating the compassionate heart of God. Let me draw your attention to verse 11. Look there in your Bible. This is God speaking. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Again, I mentioned this on the onset. God has the first word in Jonah's book, verse 1-1. God has the final word, the last word here in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. God is the last one to speak in Jonah's narrative. By contrasting Jonah's attitude toward the destruction of the plant with his attitude toward Nineveh, God exposes what the true issue is here in Jonah's life. Jonah's filled with compassion. He's filled with pity for the plant, and God is filled with compassion and pity for the people of Nineveh. Jonah shows great overwhelming concern for one small part of God's creation, but he fails to care for an entire city of people who, like Jonah, are made in the very image of God. What God is trying to show Jonah here is, Jonah, do you see? Do you see the incongruity? Congruency. Do you see the issue? Jonah desires to have mercy on something temporal and non-human. God desires mercy, to show mercy to a wretched, evil people. Note the word pity here for a second, or concern, maybe in your Bible, verse 11. Pity is a feeling that wells up for another person who is in trouble or has desperate need. But pity goes beyond sympathy. Sympathy merely feels bad. Pity puts wheels to sympathy. Pity puts feet to sympathy. Pity moves into action to assist the person in need. Now, it's both ironic and sad that Jonah had pity or concern for the plant, but he had no such feeling and took no such action when it came to the Ninevites. Furthermore, Jonah's feeling for the plant was despite the fact that he didn't have to expend himself to grow the plant. Here is Jonah all up in arms over the plant, and God's saying, now wait a second, Jonah. You didn't labor for the plant. You didn't nurture it. You didn't care for it. You didn't water it. You, you didn't cause the sun to rise that it would grow, but yet you have such great pity for it. You have such great concern for it. But now that it's dead... Jonah argues that he would have done anything to spare that little plant and to keep it alive. 
I think the point of the matter is this. If Jonah feels this way about the plant, which pales in comparison to a human being, how can he be critical of God for wanting to go to great lengths to spare Nineveh and to give life to its inhabitants? You see, think back for a moment here, and maybe even think back to your own life. The great fish was a gift to Jonah. It delivered him from death, which he certainly didn't deserve. The plant was a gift to Jonah. Again, he did nothing to earn it. Quite the contrary, God gave it to Jonah while he was sulking outside the city, waiting for Nineveh to be nuked off the map. The question then is, why can't God in the same way give Nineveh something that it doesn't deserve and has not earned? That's the scandalous nature of grace. Friends, nothing you have, you've earned. Nothing you have you deserve. Everything you have is grace. Everything you have is mercy. Everything you have is compassion. Everything you have is from the kind hand of a benevolent God. He owes nothing to us other than just condemnation for our sin. But he's given mercy and grace instead. Let me pause right here and ask, Do you know that mercy and grace? Have you ever tasted the sweetness of God's mercy and grace? Or are you fast bound in your sin? Are you like Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, running, trying to escape the omnipotent, omnipresent eye of God, hand of God? You can run, but you can't hide. You can waste your life, you can can spend your life here on all the temporal pleasures of this world, but there's a reckoning day. There's a payday coming when all men and all women without exception will stand toe-to-toe before their creator. What will you tell them? What will you have to show for your life? Will you be found in Adam trying to secure and procure a righteousness of your own through your works? through your achievement, through your merit, or will you be found in Christ, having received his mercy and his grace in exchange for your sin? I hope you know Jesus savingly, brothers and sisters. Coming to church is not just some religious experience that you check off of your list each week. It will gain you no brownie points. It will gain you no merit before the Lord if you are trying to garner his eye to try to please him by doing spiritual things, by doing religious things. Cast yourself upon the matchless mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus. Look at this phrase here. The inhabitants of Nineveh did not know their right hand from their left. Now, if you, if you endeavor to read some commentary sometime, much ink has been spilled over this short little phrase here. All kinds of possibilities as to what this means and how it applies. Some commentators think that it speaks to the, tw- to the, to the children of Nineveh, that there were some 120,000 children or, or young people in Nineveh, which would have made the, uh, the population of Nineveh somewhere in the ballpark of 600 plus thousand people. I don't necessarily think that's what the text means here. I think the phrase, do not know their right hand from their left, is an idiomatic expression, meaning that the inhabitants of Nineveh have a lack of ability to discriminate a course of action. 
In other words, they have an inability because they are in their sin to make an informed decision, to make a righteous decision. I think this phrase speaks to the moral blindness that was present in Nineveh. And the same sad commentary is true of the country and the world that we live in today, the city that we live in. If you take the combined population of, of Cape and Jackson, somewhere in the ballpark of uh, fifty to 55,000 people, there are many of that 55,000 who do not know their right hand from their left. And my, 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 the thing that, lay, that I lay awake at night and, and think about is how will they? How will they? And will we be any part of that? God forbid... God forbid that we at the chapel would just turn inward and be some kind of holy huddle. Content to fellowship, content to rub shoulders with each other, content to be comfortable in in the company of those who are like-minded with us, those who are in our kind of same socioeconomic group, those who look like us, talk like us, work at the same places that we work at, will we just circle the wagons? Or will we open our eyes and realize that there are people out there who do not know their right hand from their left, who do not have the ability to discriminate between that which is righteous and unrighteous? You think about the world we live in, we've we've jettisoned truth. Uh, in favor of whatever makes you happy. The definition of truth in the world that we live in today is whatever is true to you. Do your own thing. Truth is just be true to you. Whatever it is, just be true to yourself. You can write your own truth. Remember, though, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's why we've got to preach the gospel. We, we cannot just live the gospel. I, I, I have mentioned this before. There is probably scarcely a greater lie from the pit of hell than, we, than the fact that we can just live the gospel and people will, will, by some sort of osmosis, just get it and they'll become believers. The gospel necessitates words. God is a God who speaks. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 are all opened by God speaking. The gospel necessitates words words. We have to preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel, when it's received, liberates the captives and gives sight to the blind. It reorients a person's moral compass to true north. It enables a person to see the distinction between darkness and light, rebellion and disobedience, sin and righteousness. The people of Nineveh were ignorant, but they certainly weren't innocent. There are a lot of people in the community that we live in that are ignorant of spiritual things. They're culpable in. They're ignorant, but they're not innocent. And you have the answer. You have the answer. Are there people that we resist loving with the gospel because of their values, because of their beliefs, because of their lifestyle, because their life contradicts ours in some way? Who are your personal Ninevites? Think about it for a second. We all have some. Who are your personal Ninevites? 
Do they belong to weird religious organizations? Are they secular humanists? Are they homosexuals? Are they people who stand pro-choice or pro-abortion? Are they people who advocate, advocate some left-wing social agenda? Do they embrace some new age spirituality? Do they have a different skin color? Do they live in a neighborhood that you and I intentionally circumnavigate? Do they cuss like a sailor or drink like a fish? Who are your Ninevites? If God can be compassionate to Nineveh, then you and I can be compassionate to our neighbors. No matter their sin. We don't have to agree with them. Matter of fact, you can't agree with them. We must call sin, sin. We must follow it up and by saying, we have a great Savior for sin. His name is Jesus Christ. If we're honest, and again, I'm in the boat here, many of us have become cold and calloused and numb to the plight of the lost. Jesus wept over the rebelliousness and the lostness of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. But we aren't oftentimes brought to tears over the lostness of our city and our communities. And I don't mean some sort of, of sensationalized, manufactured emotions. It's not what I'm talking about when I'm saying, or when I'm asking the question, uh, does your heart break? Or are you just numb and cold and callous to the plight of the lost? I'm not talking about manufacturing some sort of feelings, but rather genuine heart pangs as you consider the eternity of those who are on a collision course with hell. Do you lose sleep at night because your heart is heavy over the eternal destiny of those who don't know Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, the text says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion, it's the Greek word splanknizomai. You don't need to know the Greek word, but you do need to know what it means. When Jesus saw the, the lostness of the people he was filled with compassion. The word there literally means that he was filled with pity such that his bowels turned, such that he felt it on the inside. This isn't manufactured feelings. We're not, we're not trying to manufacture a weepiness for the lost. The question is when we realize their eternity, their eternal destiny, are we moved with pity and compassion? Not just sympathy, but pity and compassion that advances towards the one who's in distress, advances towards the one who needs help. Let me close here this morning by asking this question. Did Jonah learn the lesson that God was trying to teach him? Did Jonah learn the lesson? As we read the final words of Jonah, we may be left thinking, whatever became of Jonah? The story seems a little bit unfinished, and I think that's part of the book of Jonah. I think that's part of the intention. Jonah is the biography of a prophet in a given time, in a given place, in history. But Jonah is also a parable. Jonah, in many ways, is shaped just like the parables that Jesus uses in his New Testament teaching. Parables are like mirrors. They reflect back what is standing before them. In this sense, Jonah reflects our hearts back to us and forces us to wrestle with what we see. Did Jonah ever learn the lesson that God was trying to teach him? Well, most likely Jonah couldn't have written the book, which I would submit to you that Jonah is the author here. Jonah is pinning his own story here. 
I would submit that Jonah probably could not have written the book unless he had learned the point that God was seeking to bring home to him. But we don't know that for certain. At the end of the day, whether Jonah learned the lesson God was trying to teach him or not, that really isn't the point of the book. The real question isn't, did Jonah learn his lesson? The real question is, will you learn it? That's the real question. Will you learn the lesson that God is trying to teach here? Will you learn that you can't run from God? Will you learn that the providence of God is working to make you more like Christ? Will you learn that your sin will always find you out? Remember, downward is always the way of sin. Sin always comes at a cost. It always invites the discipline of God, and it always splatters on you and those around you. Will you learn that great theology that isn't put into practice doesn't please God? Will you learn that God isn't just interested in your mere compliance, that's obedience under duress, but that he wants your heart? Will you learn that selfishness must be put to death wherever it rears its ugly head? Will you learn that comfort makes a bad God? Will you learn that lost people, even the ones that you and I struggle to love, are important to God and he desires that they repent and be saved? Will you learn to love this great city in which there are some 55,000 people, many of whom do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ? These are the questions that Jonah brings us face to face with. This is the parable with which we stare into this morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah two times. In chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord has come to you and to me. The question is, are you listening and are you learning? Are you listening and are you learning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it searches us. Thank you that it exposes us. Thank you that it lays us naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you that it teaches, that it instructs, that it rebukes, that it edifies, that it breaks us, but yet it binds us up at the same time. Lord, we thank you most of all that the living word came to earth and took on flesh and lived among us, that in the face of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have seen the glory of God, the one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God, would you enable us to be like that, to mirror a life of grace and truth in the world in which we live. Lord, change our hearts. Make us more like Jesus uh, each day. As we leave here this morning, as we walk out these glass doors, I pray that your spirit, much has been said this morning, uh, too much for our minds and our hearts to, to do something with all of it, but I pray uh, as each individual walks from this place today that you would impress a, a truth or two or three upon their hearts and minds with which they need to bring their life in compliance, willful compliance, not compliance under duress, willful compliance, joyful compliance to your word, that Jesus Christ may be made much of in the city in which we live. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.